0: This morning starts the the season of Lent for us and and I get it we, uh, we Protestants uh, you know a lot of us tend to, to be like, "You yeah, know what are all these religious holidays, so on and so forth but You know, things like Advent that mark the birth of Christ and that preparation time when we talk about the birth of Christ, that's become pretty important in the church, and we've accepted that pretty well. You know, Epiphany, we're like a little unclear on. It's like, what's going on in Epiphany? You know, the time of the wise men coming to worship the Christ child, but by the time generally we get to Lent, we understand that something important and something significant is about to happen. We're about to come into Holy Week in just a few weeks in which we're going to talk about those ending days of Jesus' life. And ultimately, that gets crowned with Easter morning where we talk about the resurrection because Friday night we've talked about the death and Thursday night we've talked about the betrayal. This week begins Lent, and we mark Lent with a couple things. Number one, traditionally in the church, we use Tuesday as what we call Shrove Tuesday, meaning if you want to eat that 12-ounce steak from Longhorn Steakhouse, Tuesday night's the night to do that. Because starting Wednesday, if steak is your thing, you're supposed to say, I'm not going to eat any steak for the next 40 days. So you eat 12 ounces of it on Tuesday night so that you don't miss it quite so much in the next 40 days. But maybe your thing is not steak. Maybe your thing is chocolate. So Tuesday night on Shrove Tuesday, you eat a full pound Hershey bar of chocolate that you get from Walmart, right? Because for the next 40 days, you're not going to eat any. I don't recommend that. The whole idea of the time of Lent, just like Advent is a preparation for the birth of Christ, Lent is that preparation for the death and the resurrection of Christ. And so, what we usually have done during Lent as followers of Jesus Christ is we've taken that as a church time, as a religious time, 40 days, and we've taken a look at our lives, our priorities. And sometimes we have a sense that things maybe are just out of whack a little bit. Yeah? Maybe things are out of balance a little bit. Maybe, as it was with me last year, right in the middle of all this stuff that was going on, you realize that your health has been out of balance for a while. Lent is that time that you you would maybe take something away so that you could figure out exactly what's going on in life. And what you do then is you maybe add something, maybe you add some prayers, or, or every time that you're thinking about that chocolate that you love to eat, but maybe you've been eating too much of it, or, or you know what, maybe it's something not quite as, as simple as food, maybe it's relationships, and your relationships just don't feel like they're working the way they're supposed to. And you need that balance to be restored in your life. And so in Lent, you would would give something up. Maybe you really like your cell phone. But you give up texting and and those types of things during Lent. And every time you feel yourself reach into your pocket or your purse, you use that time and you make that remind you, I need to think about my relationships. And then maybe rather than texting, maybe you actually make the phone call. And you talk to somebody. Or maybe you go and sit down. Or maybe you just use that time to sit and think. So Lent is that time that we reestablish balance. And it helps us think about priorities. What are things worth to you? Do you have things out of place? Do you, do you have the worth of things out of place? Has money become more important than family? Has food become more important than health? Has health become more important than something else? What are things worth to you? And it's from this first Sunday of Lent that I want to share a portion of Scripture with you, and I want to talk to you about what Scripture, at least some of what Scripture, might have to say about this. If you have your Bibles with you, Turn to Matthew 27, whether it's on your cell phone or, or uh, you actually carry one of these big things around with you still. Turn to the, the, the chapter of the 27th chapter of Matthew. It's going to be very familiar to you if you've spent any time around church because it has to do with a guy named Judas, one of Jesus' disciples. And the fact that last night not last night, but last night in terms of the scripture here today, Judas betrayed Jesus. Okay? So today, it says, when morning came, this morning, all the chief priests and elders of the people, they plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And so they bound him, verse 2, and they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. And you know who was watching all of this? Judas. Well, after they led Jesus away, Matthew picks the story up in verse 3. So Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, what did Judas think was going to happen? Seeing that Jesus had been condemned, he was remorseful. Something's wrong here. So he did the only thing I guess he thought he could do at that point. Maybe he thought this was going to change the religious leaders' minds. But Matthew says that what Judas did is he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to these chief priests and to these elders. And he said to them, I've sinned. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said to him, well, what's that to us? You see to it. It's your sin. What's that to us? I don't know what Jesus was expecting would happen here. Maybe if he gave the money back, they would release Jesus. Maybe he could call for a do-over. Something's wrong in Judas's life, and he doesn't know what to do with it. So what he does is he brings the 30 pieces of silver back. He tries to give it back to them and they won't take it. So he throws the pieces of silver into the temple. And he leaves. And he hangs himself. Tragedy. We're not preaching about that today, but let that sink in. doesn't know what else to do he has lost all hope the chief priest took the silver pieces and said what are we going to do with these it's not lawful to put them into the treasury they're the price of blood so they consulted together and they bought with them the 30 pieces of silver the potter's field to bury strangers in. Those that we don't know. Those that we really don't care about. Those that won't have a place to be buried here. We'll, we'll use this money, since it's not lawful to put it in the treasury, to buy that field. And in that field, we'll throw all of those people that we just don't know. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Not this day, but the day of Matthew. He's pointing that out. And then Matthew says this. Then was fulfilled. This is Matthew's commentary, okay? Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced." And they gave them those 30 pieces of silver for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Okay, so you've got the story. Now here's the question What was Christ worth to Judas? Let's assume that this wasn't about Christ. Let's assume that maybe this was about Judas just really wanting Christ to show himself as the Messiah. In other words, Judas's number one priority was that Jesus was supposed to have thrown off the shackles of, of the, the chief priests. He was supposed to show his power in that moment. Have you you heard that interpretation? I've heard that interpretation, that that Judas really wasn't betraying Jesus. What he was doing was just trying to get him to reveal himself as the Messiah because the Messiah wouldn't let himself be killed like that, obviously. Let's Let's give Judas the benefit of all those doubts. What was it worth to Judas? What price did he set? 30 pieces of silver. Why is that significant? Why 30 pieces of silver? Well, to understand that, you have to understand what Matthew was trying to say in that very last section. When he says, Then was fulfilled what the prophet Jeremiah spoke. And so, this is an opportunity maybe for me to give you a little bit of context for this so that when Holy Week comes this year, you know a little more about what was going on in terms of what God had already told us was supposed to happen. You'll see that, that Matthew says, according to Jeremiah, This was fulfilled. Problem is, you can read through the entire book of Jeremiah and not find anything about 30 pieces of silver. But if you turn to the book of Zechariah, you find this. Listen. Then I said to them, if it's agreeable to you, give me my wages. And if it's not, then don't give me anything. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. This is the part that Matthew says, Then was fulfilled The prophecy by Jeremiah. Now, how do we get Jeremiah with Zechariah? I'm glad you asked. All of the prophetic books of this time that had to do with the exile Nehemiah, Ezra, Zechariah all of those were known as the books of Jeremiah because Jeremiah was the major prophet of that day. So when Matthew is referring to the prophecies of Jeremiah, he is talking about the major prophet of that day that we basically named all of these books after and Zechariah is just one of those. Now let me give you the context. Jeremiah is the prophet that 500 years before Jesus is going to be born, is going to look at the Jewish people, and he's going to say, you have forgotten about God. And the Jewish people are basically looking at Jeremiah saying, you're crazy. God is still our God. And Jeremiah says, you are not being faithful to Yahweh. Jeremiah says, because of that, Babylon is going to come, and they're going to conquer us. The people turn to the other prophets and say, is this true? And, of course, the other prophets of God say, never. Never could that be true. God would not abandon us to Babylon. After all, God has fought the Philistines for them. You can name off all the people that God has taken care of for Israel. And so all the prophets of the day, except for Jeremiah are saying, God's going to protect us, we're not going to be going uh, into exile in Babylon. Jeremiah, to the end, continues to say to them, this is going to happen to you. And the people continue to ignore him. Jeremiah is the one they put the yoke on, and he put it on of wood, and uh, and then broke it, and he put one on of iron, and they couldn't break that one. Jeremiah is, you know, he's that prophet. Jeremiah did for the people of Israel what my mother and father did for me. My mother and father looked at me when I was a teenager. Teenagers pay attention to this. Teenagers pay attention to this. My mother and father looked at me when I was a teenager and they said, Tim, we get it. We're going to tell you things that you should do in your life and you're going to ignore us. So here's what we want you to do. We want you to write this down on a piece of paper. And literally, my mother would say, write this down. And so I would write it down. And she would tell me something. And she would say, now I want you to put that in your Bible because I know you won't quit reading your Bible. And so I would put it in my Bible. And she would say, now here's the deal. When you ignore me, And when you get into trouble, you're going to be reading your Bible and you're going to see that little note. And this is a note that's going to tell you how to deal with the trouble that I told you you should have stayed out of to begin with. But you were too stubborn to pay attention to me. And I have to tell you that more than once I found little slips of paper as I got older and I went off to college. Or I came back and I was rummaging through things and my mother had written me a note. And she had stuck it in there because she knew I wouldn't keep what she gave me to write. And I would read it. And you know what? (laughs) I was in the trouble, she would say, I would get into if I didn't do something that I was too stubborn to listen to. And then she had words for me or my father had words for me. Maybe it was a poem. Maybe it was just when you find yourself in this situation, this is what you need to do. And sure enough, that would be the way to deal with the trouble that I was in because I had ignored her original advice. God, through Jeremiah, said to his people, I know you're not going to pay any attention to me. So here's the thing. Write this down. Because when you do find yourself in Babylon, you're not going to know what to do. You're going to feel like I've left you you're going to feel like I don't love you anymore. You're going to feel like there's no hope for the future. And here's one of the things that Jeremiah then said on behalf of God. When you get to Babylon, which you will, though you don't believe it, let your children marry. Because, you know, if we found ourselves all of a sudden in exile... We have a tendency maybe to just constantly be rebellious, to constantly fight against that that exile that we're in. Jeremiah says God is telling you, go ahead and have children. Plant vineyards. Buy homes. Have grandkids. You see, the people that do that, they're there for the long haul. You know how long it takes for a vineyard to begin to produce? Decades. You don't plant a vineyard and next year you grow grapes. It takes a long, long time for grapevines to form. It takes a long time to have grandkids, folks. Decades. They're worth it, but it takes a while. And in order to have grandkids, you had to let your kids get married. You had you had to let them have a home and go forward from that home and grow up themselves and find their own jobs and get married, have kids. And then one day you get that phone call or one day you see it on Facebook and you call your son like, hey, you're supposed to tell me first. Zechariah is a Babylon baby. Jeremiah is the one that told them, when you get to Babylon, your instinct is going to be to fight all the time and to say, you have no right to hold us in bondage. Jeremiah says, I want to tell you what God is going to tell you to do. God's going to tell you, buy a home where you're at. Sounds like my mama's advice. Tim, where you find yourself, you're going to have to make the best of what's happened. Have kids. Let your kids get married. Because if you let your kids get married, they'll have children. And from those children will come Babylon babies. You see, it's going to take them decades, 50 years, to come back home. And we're going to get Ezra, and we're going to get Nehemiah. We're going to get the people that go to Cyrus and say, let us go back and build the temple. Let us go back and build the walls of Jerusalem again. And who's going to live in those walls? Zechariah. Who's going to live in the walls? The people that went into bondage are dead. The people that come out of Babylon and come back to Jerusalem are the children. That Jeremiah said to the people in exile, have children, buy homes, have babies. Because the name Zechariah means Yahweh remembered. We name our children in Babylon. God remembers us. And so Zechariah is the prophet today that Matthew is going to quote. Because he's the prophet that comes back to Jerusalem. And you see, it's all supposed to be wonderful now, isn't it? God has delivered us out of Babylon. He's brought us back. The walls are rebuilt. The temple is rebuilt. We have Jerusalem back. We are a people again. And shouldn't we look at our shepherd and say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, God, for remembering us. Zechariah says, I'll tell you exactly what happens. He records it for us here. They come back. God has delivered them. God has rebuilt the walls with with Nehemiah. God has rebuilt the temple with Ezra. God has reestablished Jerusalem. And the people look at him and listen to what it says they thought. I fed the flock, particularly the poor of the flock. This is, for those of you who want the biblical reference, this is Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 7. I fed the flock, in particular the poor of the flock. And when I did that, I took for myself two staffs, one called beauty, the other called bonds. In other words, beauty is all of that stuff that God has given us that's beautiful. Bonds is the fact that... That's the thing that connects us to our God. We are not free to use all of that just for anything we want. God is the shepherd. And so David quotes in the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me, right? Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Beauty and bond. And, and Zechariah goes on. I fed the flock, God said. And the flock, verse 8, dismissed the three shepherds in one month. Why? Because they loathed them. You know what loathe means? You detest it. So God has done all of this, Zechariah says. And you loathe God. And so this is what God said to him. Are you ready? I took my staff and I cut it in two. I took the staff of bond and beauty and I broke them in two. And I said to them, if it's agreeable to you, Give me my wages. What am I worth? The people of Israel, God asks them through Zechariah, If it's agreeable to you, give me my wages. If not, don't give me anything. If I'm not worth anything to you, then don't even give me anything. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. You know why? Go back to the book of Exodus. 30 pieces of silver is significant. If your ox falls in a ditch, what is the price of that ox? 30 pieces of silver. If you injure your neighbor's slave, you shall give them 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver is the Levitical law of Exodus. Price. For a, burst of, a beast of burden, an ox, or a slave. God says to the people that came back from Babylon, what am I worth to you? Whatever it is, give me that. They talked, and they weighed out for him 30 pieces of silver. And Judas came to the chief priests. What is Jesus worth to you? 30 pieces of silver. The Price of a Slave. This is African American History Month. I'm 56. I know, It's young. But it means I was born in 1963. I don't remember anything about Watts riots. But I do remember what happened... After this great upheaval of the 1960s When we all of a sudden talked about integration When we all of a sudden talked about We needed to bring cultures together Blacks and whites They needed to go to the same schools They needed to live in the same communions, we, communities We called it desegregation And I was in my heyday as a teenager, in the early to mid-1970s. I was driving in the 1970s. And so I remember the tremendous turmoil in this nation as we were trying to desegregate, as children of different races and cultures came together to try to figure out how to live together. And so for all of my life, I have been hearing the lessons and the stories that began in that 1950, 1960 era where we were wrestling with the vestiges of the Civil War still and the founding of this nation. And for my whole life, I have struggled with Why was American slavery so different than slavery in the rest of the world? Why? Just because this was now white people? I didn't understand any of it. And so every time we would have these conversations, I was always scratching my head. And I was saying, why did did we do something any more evil in this nation than anybody else had ever done? Nobody, when we talk about slavery, nobody talks about Egyptian slavery. Nobody talks about African slavery. Nobody talks about the slaveries that that one race took another race for thousands of years before America was even a dream. Why didn't, when we have these conversations, why didn't we talk about any of those things? And nobody was ever able to say... This is what was different to me. They were just able to say but this is different. But why is it different? A few weeks ago I watched the movie Harriet. It's a movie about Harriet Tubman. If you haven't seen it it's a powerful movie I would suggest it. Probably I I grew up in the generation of roots, Alex Haley and all of that, great movie. But I can tell you that did not impact me as much as the movie Harriet did. And Harriet's much shorter. I watched the movie Harriet and it hit me. I came out of that Wednesday morning. We, we did it at, at Pastor Tim's book club. And then we went out to lunch afterwards. And it hit me that morning. Here's the thing that was different. I never understood it, 56 years of age, been wrestling with this my whole life, to understand. Here's what was different. In history, when we talk about slavery, we talk about one nation conquers another nation, and by virtue of the fact that they lost, you took them as slaves. They built for you the pyramids. They took care of your fields. They took care of you. And so if you were Roman and you had slaves, maybe you made them fight in your military. During the period of slavery that America was touched by it, we did something different. And I don't mean we as in we invented this. I'm saying we as America participated in this. And I saw how insidious it was in the movie Harriet. I had never realized what it was before. In American slavery, we hadn't conquered anybody. As a matter of fact, these weren't slaves of a war that we were even fighting. We, not we as America, we as colonials... Spain, France, England, Portugal, the Dutch. We went over to the continent of Africa where war was happening between tribes. And when one tribe beat another tribe, they took slaves. That's the way it had always been in history. But we provided an avenue for them to take those slaves and rather than enculturate them into their culture, use them as beasts of burdens, basically, it's understandable. We lost a war. It had been happening for hundreds and thousands of years. You lose the war. So what's the lesson? Don't lose the war. The lesson is protect yourselves. The lesson is fight back that was the lesson for thousands of years because you don't want to be a slave but we pulled boats up and they took the slaves that they had taken in battle that would have normally been used where they lived and they turned them into currency they put them on a ship They sent them halfway across the world. And when they arrived on the shores of America, we only dealt with them in terms of worth. And so we checked their teeth. We looked at their muscles. And a child was worth this much on the auction block. And a woman was worth this much. And if that woman had babies... Those babies now belong to me. For as long as I told them, generation after generation after generation, that they would be mine. And so the insidious nature of what it meant to be a slave in America was the very thing that people like Benjamin Franklin and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson said, we can't found this nation allowing slavery. But Benjamin Franklin said to Thomas Jefferson, and especially John Adams, if we fight that battle now, we will never form a nation because we're not going to get 13 colonies to agree on this issue. And Benjamin Franklin said, John, you need to fight this battle after we become a nation. And brothers and sisters, 80 years later, we fought the battle. Because the type of slavery, all slavery is wrong. But the type of slavery that we were a part of in America was insidious because we used it to place a value on a person's life. I never knew that for 56 years. I knew it up here, but it never registered with me. It's appropriate in African American History Month for me to at least share the epiphany that I had this year. What was different? Now, you don't have to agree with that. That's one person's lifelong quest to understand something. And you can totally disagree. And you can say, Tim, you're wrong. But let me tell you where it had meaning for me. It had meaning for me when Judas is being asked a question. What is it worth for you to betray? And he was able to put a price tag on that. And it was the price tag of a slave. What was it worth, God asked the people of Israel, when I have brought you back from Babylon, when I have been your shepherd, what are my wages for that? And the people of Israel considered it, counted out 30 pieces of silver, the price of, of a slave. And so my question as we come into Lent, obviously Judas's priorities were just all out of proportion. Obviously the people of Israel had lost all sense of balance in relation to their God. As we come into Lent, this is a wonderful story to begin this season because it begs for us to answer the question How are your priorities? How are my priorities? Do do we have things in the right place? How do we value each other? How do we value our families? How do we value our jobs? Where are they at in relation to God, in relation to each other? Are we giving too much attention to our jobs? Are we not giving our job enough attention? Are are we giving recreation or health or something else more attention? Lent is that time when we step back from that and we'll begin at Wednesday night for anybody that wants to. I'll be in the Connection Center again this year and I'll have ashes from palm leaves that have been burned and I'll have oil and I'll have some water that came from the Jordan River and I will mix all that together. And and for anybody that wants to come, I'll ask you two things. Number one, I'll say, is there anything we can pray about? Anything that's on your heart as we go into this season of Lent? And and if there's something we can pray about, you're going to tell me that and we're going to pray. And then I'm going to take and I'm going to put my thumb in the ashes and I'm going to say, would you like for me to impose ashes? And you'll either say yes or no and the prayer will have been enough or you will say yes. And I will say, remember then from dust you came and to dust you shall return and I'll make a cross either on your hand or on your forehead and you're going to wash it off the next day. But it will be an act as we begin Lent that says, I'm going to consider. My priorities. Because I want them to be right in relation to God and in relation to each other. Because let me tell you the end of this. We might have valued Judas, might have valued Christ at that. Israel might have valued God at that. But ultimately God was asked a question. Now not from us. (laughs) From himself. What are my people worth? brothers and sisters, we know how he answered that. We may have valued him at the price of a slave. He valued us at the price of a son. For God so loved, valued the world that what he gave wasn't 30 pieces of silver but His only Son, that whosoever would believe could be saved. Heavenly Father, I just pray as we come into this season of reflection, this time when we, we can, just step back and, and maybe look at our priorities and, and even change some things because, Lord, we have permission in Your name to change things. I just pray that You would help us Remember how valuable we are to you. And so, Lord, in that, may we remember to value each other the way you have valued us. And, Lord, let us then in return set your value and the things that you value in our lives according to your purpose. This we pray in your name. And amen. Please stand. May the Lord bless you, keep you, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May God lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God is good. And all the time. Go in peace. God bless everybody.